Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast, and this time we'll be looking at an oldie but a goodie, salicylate poisoning. I have not seen one of these in quite some time, but it is a classic tox question for examinations in both emergency medicine and intensive care medicine. O's manual chapter 90 has the ambitious task of covering all poisonings, so unsurprisingly it is a little brief, but this post is supplemented by a few other excellent resources linked to at the end. Salicylates are primarily found in our part of the world in aspirin, and locally the commonest use for aspirin these days is primary or secondary prevention of vascular disease, so i.e. the kind of baby aspirin tablets that come in doses of 75 milligrams. You would need to take a large number of these to get into trouble. The analgesic doses of near to 600 milligrams are much less commonly used, especially when compared with the ubiquitous paracetamol, but 15 to 20 of these big aspirins could definitely get you into big trouble. It does exist in other forms, most notably in oil of wintergreen, uh, which in kids can be a potential fatal ingestion at a very low volume. Like most ingestions, the context or the patient will often be the, the clear giveaway to the diagnosis, but if they haven't told you directly, you might start by asking questions about tinnitus, dizziness and vomiting. On examination, you might find fever, tachypnea, and even impaired consciousness as things get more advanced. And these kind of clinical signs can be explained by looking at the pathophysiology. Aspirin being salicylic acid is by nature an acid, and one would think that this is the reason that you get all that metabolic acidosis. In overdose, it does indeed form part of the anion gap of unmeasured anions along with the lactate, but in reality, the salicylate apparently contributes only a very small amount to the anion gap here, and other unmeasured anions like lactate and ketones for most of the anion gap. The metabolic acidosis uh, induces an appropriate Kussmaul-like response observed in tachypnea, and minute ventilation is increased to lower the CO2 as a compensation for the metabolic acidosis. More interestingly here, aspirin has a direct effect on the brainstem, causing outflow to the respiratory centre to increase, resulting in an additional increase in minute volume beyond that which would be appropriate for the metabolic acidosis. So as a result, you get the classic blood gas of someone with a mixed metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis, where you find that the PCO2 is lower than expected um, than you would get if you, if you applied something like Winter's formula and you may even have a normal pH. Remember, um, respiratory compensation for acidosis should not correct so much as to normalize the pH. In general, the pH in these patients will be normal or high, and indeed, if an acidemia develops, you're really getting into trouble. The tinnitus and the dizziness is thought to be a direct effect on the vestibulocochlear centres, in, in, um, which induces those symptoms, and the fever is likely related to the uncoupling of oxidative, oxidative phosphorylation and possibly on hypothalamic temperature set points. So aspirin has multiple potential mechanisms of pathology that could potentially lead to death here. So number one, probably the biggest is uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation. Something so key to life on earth that pretty much all aerobic life depends on it. And high lactates are probably the best measure uh, um, for to look for this. Number two, in terms of mechanism for leading to death, would be penetration of the central nervous system with salicylates, leading to the usual toxicology spiral of seizures, coma and death. Thirdly, promotion of fatty acid metabolism causing severe ketosis and contributing to hypoglycemia. And in particular, um, there can be a bigger dissociation between the kind of serum or plasma levels of glucose and the CNS levels. So you can get an unrecognized neuroglycopenia. So don't be, um, if the sugar is in any way low on the plasma side of things, I would certainly keep it a little bit on the high side because it's not that well reflective of what's happening at a brain level. 
So the non-ionized form of aspirin causes all of the nastiness and the dissociation between ionized and non-ionized um, salicylate is highly pH dependent. So an aspirin level of 400, say, at a pH of 7.4 might be tolerable, but the same level at a pH of 7.2 is likely to be rapidly lethal. So these two components, the kind of interaction of the aspirin and the blood pH form the subtleties of our kind of management at this stage. So levels are generally easily obtainable from every lab I've ever worked with, um, and this will give you a total salicylate. It does not tell you the unionized salicylate, which is the bit that determines the badness, as mentioned above. Hence, overall levels on their own are purely predictive of mortality. Levels of greater than 500 milligrams per litre are definitely where you should be worrying and thinking about dialysis. Uh, just as a little note, outside of UK and Ireland, levels may well be reported in milligrams per deciliter rather than milligrams per litre, so do be sure you know what you're looking at. So the absorption of salicylates is also quite variable. So unlike paracetamol, where we have a fairly robust curve um, in terms of what the level is at a certain time, and that allows us to determine treatment threshold, unfortunately salicylates, salicylates can be tricky, and repeat levels every few hours are usually recommended to see if there's ongoing absorption from the gut. And indeed, there may be an argument um, to make here for using repeat doses of activated charcoal. Management in general will follow that usual um, tox paradigm um, of ABCs first and then you're thinking about risk assessment, antidotes, enhanced elimination and supportive care. The excellent mnemonic resource RSI dead um, is a very useful one for that. I've linked to that in the show notes. Alkalinization has been the mainstay of treatment probably for years and this works probably works by two ways. Firstly by reducing of penetration of this salicylate into the CNS. And secondly, by enhancing elimination through the kidneys. There are a variety of ways to achieve this, but typically this is going to be done through short infusions of the typical maybe 50 to 100 mils of 8.4% bicarb amps that are stocked in the resource trolleys, or even the more prolonged infusions of the isotonic bicarb made by mixing 150 mils of the 8.4% in 850 mils of 5% dextrose. Either way, you're looking to get the urine pH above 7.5. Toxbase, which is the main kind of reference service that we have in the UK and Ireland um, for advice on poisonings, would suggest indications for hemodialysis as follows. Number one, a level of greater than 900. Number two, a level of greater than 700 with acidemia. And number three, coma with the presence of salicylate poisoning. Um, of note that there's an XTRIP group, E-X-T-R-I-P, which is a group that produces guidelines on extracorporeal removal of poisons, and they have their own published guidance on that as well. That's worth looking at. As with all toxicology cases, um, intermittent hemodialysis would probably be better at clearance and continuous renal replacement, but in reality, the only modality available when you need it is going to be CRRT. Filtration is poor overall at clearance, um, so this is a situation where you'll want to be sure you're using CVVHDF um, with a larger exchange than usual. Given the importance of maintaining a normal or an alkalotic pH in these patients, it can be problematic to pursue intubation, as the mechanical ventilator will complain noisily and typically fail at managing to maintain a volume, a minute volume of maybe even 20 litres a minute, which is what the patient was doing before you intubated them. The inevitable drop in minute volume following your sedative and paralytic of choice will drop the pH dramatically, uh, and that will unleash the salicylates to do their devilry. In fact, describing it as problematic is probably understating it, um, as this is probably something that's more likely to be better described as a homicidal move, unless it is really needed. Now, really needed in inverted commas is not exactly that well defined here, but you really should be intubating um, only when you, again, inverted commas, really need to, and do it with extreme caution.
Finally, as an interesting side note, um, probably a little clinical consequence, the INR is typically raised in those with salicylate poisoning, and this is apparently linked to a warfarin-like effect on part of the vitamin K cycle, and it apparently can be corrected with the vitamin K if needed. And for reading and references for this post, Life in the Fastly and the Critical Care Compendium entries, excellent internet book of critical care, have of course covered it already. O's Manual, Chapter 90, um, Lindsay Murray and Michael Duggan's Toxicology Handbook, second edition I also used, and then the UK Tox-based guidance available online. Thanks again for listening.